This is Migrant Rights, Migrant Realities, a podcast series about women's labor migration between South Asia and the Middle East. Migration between these two regions is seen as temporary, even if it often spans the entire productive life of the migrant. This temporariness has resulted in the weakening of labor rights for migrant workers. Worse, their conditions of returning home are full of insecurities and a lack of income opportunities. Hi, I'm Namrita Daniel from the Global Alliance Against Traffic in Women. Over the coming weeks, we will speak with scholars and activists working on women's labor migration from Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Nepal and India. Welcome to Migrant Rights, Migrant Realities. For our first episode on the theme, Social Inclusion of Returning Women Migrant Workers, we are joined by Igor Boss, Chief Technical Advisor, Work and Freedom Program, International Labor Organization. So let me just start this podcast series by asking you two questions. The first is, where can we locate women in the labor migration, both prior to migration and upon return? And the second part of this question is that why is it important to understand women's position in the labor market? Okay, uh, good morning, uh, Namrata. It's a pleasure to be with you and with GetW. Thank you for um, inviting me to uh, answer your question. I would uh, like to start by saying that, uh, first of all, in South Asia, uh, particularly I'm talking about uh, India, Nepal, and Bangladesh, it's important to see uh, work, to look at what is the definition of work and see, you know, because particularly for women, they're working many times uh, in, you know, at, at home, um, and yet that is not really uh, counted as work in a traditional sense. Um, and, and therefore, it creates a whole bunch of confusions that are then uh, reproduced in literature uh, in many ways. So, it's important to contextualize why migration uh, happens for both men and for women from different uh, locations where it's happening. And uh, in that sense, see you know, how the economies are structured. It's important to highlight that uh, agriculture, for instance, uh, is the primary means of livelihood for, um, I think it's around 60% for, uh, in India of women. Uh, 60% as well in um, Bangladesh and 80% in, in the case of uh, Nepal. So uh, the, the, the entire rural environment is quite important. Now, um, what's happening in, in these uh, locations is quite interesting. You have a prolonged uh, agrarian crisis that's been going on for at least 25 years. What you're also seeing is that uh, the... Uh, uh, what is often called the, the, the participation of women in the labor force and paid employment uh, in rural areas uh, appears, according to census data, appears to be uh, declining uh, in, in many of the countries, not in, in all the countries, uh, particularly uh, in India, in these, particularly in these rural areas. And those who are particularly more affected by this tend to be the vulnerable populations, such as uh, uh, Dalits, Adivasis, and And therefore, 
it's in that context that I think we should situate uh, migration. Um, why, you know, why is it that women are migrating? When we look at also the statistics um, in the census, we also see that migration of women to urban areas for particularly employment is also increasing. Uh, and we look more specifically at what are the sectors in which they are migrating to. We usually find that you know the manufacturing sector is quite important, uh, domestic work is quite important as well. The construction sector, even for women, is quite uh, significant. Uh, and there are other sectors. So that sort of situates the context. Now, um, there are locations where the whole notion of migrating to find work is not possible. I mean, it's simply uh, prohibited or um, making a living has to be found within the compounds of uh, where they are and it's very difficult. Uh, so it's not even a possibility. Um, so if you look at the geography of South Asia, you will find that, uh, for instance, uh, uh, women uh, migrate abroad to low-income uh, jobs only from certain locations. In India, it tends to be in the south, uh, particularly from some specific uh, uh, blocks in specific districts of, uh, of South India, in Telangana and Andhra Pradesh or Tamil Nadu and some, a little bit in Kerala. Um, uh, but they don't often migrate to uh, to low-income jobs from, say, the north. I mean, very few uh, cases. Uh, uh, similarly, in Bangladesh, for instance, you will find that there are certain uh, parts of the country where uh, women don't migrate at all, um, and yet uh, men migrate a lot. If you look at the north, for instance, uh, in areas like uh, Kumila district, which is known to be a place where a lot of migration happens. It's one of the highest uh, outflows of male migrants uh, that are registered there. There's still very few uh, women who actually migrate from there. I mean, in other parts of North Bangladesh, you'll have a similar uh, type of uh, pattern. Whereas in some parts of Bangladesh, and it's not even uh, districts, it's specific locations of villages uh, where you'll find that all of a sudden you have many women who are migrating. Um, while the next door village in the next, just next by, you have people who women will not migrate. So I think it's it's important to understand what are the dynamics behind that. And each of each of these cases has a particular history, uh, and usually it has something to do with uh, the history of how women have entered into paid employment over time. If it's in a, a peri-urban area, for instance, in and around the whole area around Dhaka then uh, uh, you have a lot of uh, people who have been employed already, who have been seeking women, who have been seeking employment either in the garment factories and uh, uh, or as you know, in, in different sectors of uh, the uh, informal economy. And, and there's a, already some sort of established uh, pattern of um, seeking employment, which, um, which is there. And so it is not taboo for women to migrate from those places. Whereas in those other places, where women do not migrate, it's it's often seen as something which is uh, basically affects the social capital of the household. If it, if a woman has been migrating, it will uh, affect their the household's capacity to be able to marry that uh, the woman to some other um, uh, person, and so it it really infects not not only the economic side of you know basically, but also the the, the social capital of the which is important. It's very important. Those are some of the patterns that we see. Similarly, for instance, when you look at Nepal, you will see that uh, 
uh, in some parts of uh, the Terai region, um, which is quite conservative, only certain women from specific social economic categories are, are actually uh, migrating. Uh, those who have already a history having migrated from the uh, northern parts of Nepal, from the hills to the, and, and who are sought to find local employment and face different patterns of discrimination and then re-migrate. Uh, or um, you do find in some cases, um, the cases of some uh, upper caste women as well, who are pushed aside for all sorts of gender-related uh, patterns of discrimination and they, they end up migrating. Thank you, Igor, for giving us concrete examples of patterns of women's migration from Bangladesh, India, and Nepal. This is Migrant Rights, Migrant Realities. We'll be right back. Hi, my name is Borisav Gerasimov. My short name is Bobby. I'm Sharmila Parmanand. We're from the Global Alliance Against Trafficking Women. In 2020, the UN Trafficking in Persons Protocol marked its 20th year. We attended some online events that marked this anniversary, but noticed that women's organizations and service providers from the Global South were rarely invited to speak. And so we decided to host online conversations, which will present diverse opinions on the protocol, the anti-trafficking framework, and their implementation. These conversations assess the protocol's impact on trafficked and exploited people over the last two decades, and then ask, how can we put the rights of migrants, sex workers, and marginalized groups at the center of our work? Our podcast series is called Looking Back, Looking Forward, the UN Trafficking Protocol at 20. You can listen to it here on Anchor or wherever you get your podcast. Welcome back to Migrant Rights, Migrant Realities. We are speaking with Igor Bosk of the Work and Freedom Program of the ILO. Before the break, Igor was talking about the importance of histories and geography of workers from different social and economic categories in Bangladesh, India and Nepal. So you have a very uh, specific geography which uh, explains uh, why uh, people are migrating to certain areas and, and then the actual destination uh, for employment is interesting uh, and it's uh, variable, it's not always going to the same place. I mean, yes, there, there are certain patterns. For instance, from South India, you do find a lot of uh, migration to the Gulf countries, to certain other Arab countries, uh, particularly to domestic work. And it tends to be um, of a cyclical nature, but it doesn't mean that the migrant will go to the same location all the time. They may come back and go to uh, a change of countries or sometimes return and stay back in their home country and then re-migrate. And, and so there's a whole uh, sort of a cycle in the trajectories of migration uh, that exist. And then you have all the variations between the type of employments because you don't have necessarily only migration to domestic work. And so sometimes, particularly in the ILO, we tend to see, for instance, that uh, there is domestic work and there is garment work or there is uh, construction work. And then we look only at, uh, at those sectors and we um, come up with some sort of a, a picture of what are the working conditions and what are the main issues there. But in the case of um, women's work, particularly uh, more so than male's work, uh, you find that um, because a variety of reasons, but also because the salaries are quite uh, below the amount that's needed to be able to make a living, uh, people will tend to find other um, income generating opportunities to be able to make ends meet. 
they might be working some time as a domestic worker in one family and then doing a side job, uh, stitching clothes uh, for during in the evening and involved in different types of uh, occupations so that the actual working space uh, of women is comprised not of one particular sector, but several sectors. And usually those sectors are informal and often not even recognized as official work. So it poses all sorts of challenges for in terms of, uh, you know, social security and social protection issues. So that is the context in which I would situate uh, this uh, migration uh, that has happened. I have deliberately tried to describe uh, patterns of migration that go into international migration as well as local migration. Of course, there are different patterns of migration uh, depending on the women who are migrating and the locations and histories that they have. Um, but these uh, patterns tend to be quite uh, variable, messy, and it's hard to sort of categorize them into one set of um, uh, characteristics. In the next segment of this episode, we are going to expound on labor market participation of women workers. We'll be right back. Hi there, I'm Sharmila from the Global Alliance Against Traffic in Women, or GATW. If you're enjoying Migrant Rights, Migrant Realities, I'd like to invite you to another GATW podcast, Looking Back, Looking Forward, the UN Trafficking Protocol at 20. It's a podcast that features 11 advocates and activists calling for an anti-trafficking framework that puts human rights at the center of its work. Here's an excerpt from our first episode with Bandana Patanaik, International Coordinator of GATW. If we look at the trafficking protocol, the definition, the elements of trafficking are present in many stories of workers. If it is no longer an exceptional case, then we need to have much broader resistance mechanisms, much broader movements. We need people to work with, people who have worked on labor rights, people who are working with migrant workers, people who work with development issues, for example. The link to Looking Back, Looking Forward is in the description of this episode. Welcome back to Migrant Rights, Migrant Realities. We are speaking with Igor Bosk of the Worker Freedom Program of the ILO. Let me ask you, when we speak about labor market participation, what do you mean? Like, what do you mean by labor market participation for women workers? And when we speak about participation in this context, do we mean that they have membership in unions, they have access to institutions, etc.? Labor force participation is a technical term that is usually used in labor force surveys, uh, like the periodic labor force survey that India uh, did in 2017, I think it was. It's based on a definition, an operational definition, uh, that then um, translated into uh, a questionnaire, uh, and then you have enumerators or people who will then ask questions about in, in, in each household on you know, to what degree, who is employed and who is not employed, uh, and then uh, basically mark whether the women are employed or not employed according to the very specific definition that is used. And, and I think uh, um, part of the 
challenge here. Uh, this is important uh, data and it's important to collect this information, but part of the challenge is that there is a lot of stigma around women working and, um, and women even moving or migrating. And therefore, even in the responses when these um, uh, surveys are undertaken, there will be a tendency to under-report actual work. I mean, in, in essence, I mean, if people are asked, are you uh, just sitting at home idle or are you doing things at home uh, and working at home? Of course, most women will say that, of course, we're, we're working and we're and usually they're working in, in if you look at uh, the time uh, spent particularly uh, in in care work, uh, they're working much more than um, than the men are. Uh, so I think it's important to contextualize what we mean by labor force uh, participation uh, in that sense. What was the second part of your question? When we talk about participation in the labor market, are we looking at um, memberships to unions, access to institutions yeah. and other things? Membership in unions really depends on whether there is a local union. In most cases, um, uh, women who are working in the informal economy are not unionized, or even those who are working abroad, say for instance, who are uh, migrating to um, countries uh, in West Asia, in the Gulf, um, they are not allowed to join a union. Uh, union is, unionism is usually reserved for um, certain very specific uh, occupations and for nationals of, of, of those countries. Uh, and so if you're a migrant and, and you're a woman, then your ability to be able to join a union will be uh, limited by legal restrictions that don't even allow unions to unionize migrant women. Within India or within South Asia, then you have a little bit of a different scenario. But uh, if you look at what are the specific sectors of employment, like for instance, garment work uh, or textile work, there is some degree of unionizing happening in the mills of Tamil Nadu and the, the, the garment factories in, in Bangalore, for instance, but um, it is still quite limited compared to the total amount of uh, basically of, of women working in the entire sector. Uh, so actual possibilities to participate should exist, but the unions haven't been able yet to organize it. Uh, there are, of course, um, uh, very significant efforts to be able to do that. And I think uh, organizing around uh, particularly not only what happens in the factory, but what happens in relation to, for instance, other aspects of harassment uh, and other aspects. And I think you know, there's interesting uh, and original ways of organizing that have been documented and uh, practiced, uh, particularly, uh, for instance, in, in Bangalore and in some parts of Tamil Nadu. But if you look at, for instance, domestic work, um, there are, of course, many unions that are also organizing domestic workers. And I think this is building up over time. And that's it's, it's very encouraging in that sense, uh, particularly in India. We've, we're beginning to see that uh, membership of women in unions has uh, significantly increased compared to a generation ago. Uh, so that now we, we're reaching almost uh, equal levels of participation in, uh, in unions uh, uh, that's the case uh, uh, in India. So I think it's 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 an interesting sign, but uh, I think we're still the the possibility for women to be able to join um, unions is still uh, difficult. I mean, in the end, we're talking about uh, millions of jobs and unions being able to work in very specific contexts, which 
and restricted areas where, um, I mean, there's still scope to uh, expand uh, organizing um, in uh, much across all these uh, uh, sectors where women tend to be employed, particularly in the urban um, in, in the urban context where employment uh, migration is is happening and uh, the jobs tend to be there even if they're precarious. Thank you, Igor, for raising crucial points on the difficulty of collecting data and information on women's work. You also raised the important issue of underreporting women's work because of the social stigma attached to women who seek paid work outside their homes and their countries. This is Migrant Rights, Migrant Reality. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Bobby from the Global Alliance Against Trafficking Women. In the year 2000, the United Nations General Assembly adopted the protocol to prevent, suppress and punish trafficking in persons, especially women and children. The protocol obliges states to criminalize human trafficking, prosecute traffickers and assist victims. 20 years later, it is one of the most ratified UN instruments. But it has also attracted considerable criticism for leading to serious human rights violations of trafficked persons and other vulnerable groups. In 2020, GW created a podcast to mark the anniversary of the UN Trafficking Protocol. It's called Looking Back, Looking Forward, the UN Trafficking Protocol at 20. In this podcast, my colleague Sharmila and I speak with advocates and activists and reflect on the successes, failures and opportunities for the protocol and for the anti-trafficking framework in general. Check out the link to our podcast in the description of this episode. Thanks. This is Migrant Rights, Migrant Realities, a podcast series about women's labor migration between South Asia and the Middle East. Our guest is Igor Bosk, of the Work and Freedom Program of the ILO. Igor, let me just ask you, how does the state view women as bread earners? That's a good question. Uh, the The state is a very big um, you know, entity. You have different uh, institutions, uh, ministries who look at these types of issues and have different opinions. And so it's hard to generalize what the state might actually uh, think. Some parts of the state, uh, particularly those who are like involved in uh, looking at economics, they will see the remittances as something which um, is important and um, the balance of payments, uh, which is important, particularly in the case of international migration. Um, they will be looking at uh, women as breadwinners, but it's not breadwinners in the sense that they are feeding themselves. It's, it's as women who are actually making it possible for the country uh, to fill up its um, balance of payment and be able to remain a competitive country. So it's much more than, uh, than just being uh, breadwinners for themselves. I think if it were really about uh, you know, being able to, to feed the household, there is an expectation usually, and this goes beyond the state, this is more of a public, uh, a sort of a, a public understanding that the breadwinner is the man uh, and the woman is not the breadwinner. Statistics um, and public discourse about who is actually sustaining the households during the times of like the crisis now uh, tends to assume that it's always uh, men who are doing it. Uh, we know from the work that we do that women are playing an increasingly important role in actually 
uh, being the breadwinners. But that poses all sorts of challenges because it questions the, the, some of the central uh, gender roles of um, of what ex is expected from a, a male member household, which is to make ends meet. And whereas in many cases, uh, it's now the woman who's actually doing that. Uh, so these dynamics are are quite uh, interesting. I mean, they, they, they pose all sorts of challenges, and, and but it's important to look very carefully uh, on how that is developing because while it's, it's, it's very good in terms of empowerment for women, there's also reactions that are happening that are creating some tension without wanting to judge uh, about that. I think it's important to, to look at that as well. Generally, I think these opportunities are important because they enable women to have a greater uh, role in bringing in um, income to the families and, uh, and, and they are changing society in many ways. So as your question suggests, the, the, the whole notion of, of breadwinner is, is somehow tilting um, uh, in terms of gender perceptions and that's a, that's a very interesting development. Thank you, Igor. It's important to reiterate that while women are active in labor markets, the dominant patriarchal understanding is men are breadwinners for their families. But then there is a high demand for elderly care or child care in the Gulf, which many countries in Asia, South Asia and Southeast Asia can provide. This has resulted to a high demand for women's labor in the care economy. So women in those countries fit the definition of a breadwinner. What we've covered in this conversation shows a big hurdle to women's recognition in the labor market, society's association of breadwinner to a specific gender. This is Migrant Rights, Migrant Realities. Hi again, it's Sharmila. And Bobby. We're with the Global Alliance Against Trafficking Women. As we mentioned earlier in this podcast, we hosted a series of conversations on the 20th anniversary of the UN Trafficking in Persons Protocol. If you're interested to know about the gains and losses of this United Nations instrument, this is the podcast for you. It takes a broad assessment of the protocol since it was adopted in 2000 and then takes a deep dive into the anti-trafficking work in countries like Brazil, Bulgaria, Colombia, India, Serbia and the Philippines. So again, we're inviting you to listen to our podcast, Walking Back, Walking Forward, the UN Trafficking Protocol at 20. You can find the link to our podcast in the description of this Migrant Rights, Migrant Realities episode. Thanks. This is Migrant Rights, Migrant Realities, a podcast series about women's labor migration between South Asia and the Middle East. Before the break, we asked Igor Bosk of the Work and Freedom Program of the ILO, what can we suggest to states so they can recognize women as breadwinners? Uh, let me just ask you a follow-up uh, question. Uh, what are some of the ways that you can suggest or recommend that the institutions of state can possibly include in recognizing women as breadwinners? First and foremost would be to to make sure that uh, that sectors of women's employment that tend to be informal um, become uh, formal, uh, for domestic work being a case in point. Accepting that uh, domestic workers are workers uh, and they deserve equal labor rights would be an obvious step to, uh, to consider. 
similar things could be said about other sectors, whether, for instance, whether it's about uh, sanitation workers or community workers, uh, many of these scheme workers, safai uh, kamchari workers and others, they may have some, some income and they have some level of recognition, but um, their uh, remuneration is quite low compared to the amount of work that they actually do, particularly during this crisis. So a good step that you know governments could take is to uh, acknowledge the crucial role that they have played during uh, this care workers have been and basically guarantee uh, full labor rights uh, to them um, in par with the general uh, fundamental principles and rights at work that, that are important so i think th those are some some measures there, there's meant much more that, uh, that that could be said i think um, a lot could be done in terms of uh, awareness raising and, and breaking some of these uh, stereotypes. It's also uh, quite challenging. Uh, you have to have a very strong um, capacity to sustain information that often will be uh, appearing as countercurrent. Like I was explaining just a while ago, if males are seen as the primary breadwinners, explaining that women should be recognized is, is, is more difficult. So I think these are the types of challenges that we have to tackle. Thank you, Igor. And let me just ask you one last question. What strategies can we use to mobilize workers? And how do we create a workers' consciousness for labor rights? Organizing workers really depends on the on the sectors and the specific uh, and who we're talking about. There's different strategies and many unions will will be deploying. If if the purpose is to organize particularly uh, in sectors where there's a lot of informal workers or where people are don't enjoy full uh, full labor rights, then uh, you know some of the uh, basic things that can be done is to uh, create safe spaces where women can get together and. Uh, and talk between each other. That's uh, that's one of the, at least the, the the preconditions for freedom association to be able to happen. Um, and as you know, freedom association is a is a fundamental principle and right at work. So that's something uh, that can be done in cases where it's legally possible to to have a space. I mean, many unions do have spaces. I've seen this in, or or sometimes. It, uh, different other organizations do this, but you have uh, spaces that are created and, and people can come and unions can, can, can also then uh, talk about uh, worker rights and, and, and people can share their experiences and how to defend their rights in different circumstances and so on. Those type of exchange and communication is very, very important to build a collective um, consciousness uh, that uh, has a uh, potential to actually change things, whether it's vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the employer uh, or vis-a-vis -vis the state in terms of uh, uh, social security benefits and others. Those are some uh, basic uh, strategies that can be uh, uh, taken, they, they, and they vary. I mean, there's other, another aspect of it is particularly because in many of these sectors, you have a lot of subcontracting that is happening. Um, and uh, it's very confusing to know, you know for in these supply chains, how these contracting processes are changing on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, so it's important to be able to uh, map out some of these, uh, uh, you know, so the supply chain and who's doing what, where, uh, how, what type of contracts, what type of wages are being given um, uh, to different people, who are the main contractors or 
uh, tekedars or whatever they call them. Once all these issues are uh, identified, then it's possible to start uh, organizing uh, collective action, whether it's action which targets particularly the smaller contractors and organizing some of the smaller contractors to understand how this and put pressure along the uh, the supply chains uh, uh, in an uh, upward direction, or whether it's to go directly for some of the sort of more uh, middle level areas of the supply chain. So there are different uh, uh, strategies and, and uh, it's hard to generalize what is better uh, at which stage and, and in which circumstances. It really depends on, on the worker's perception of what would be more strategic. So thank you, thank you, Igor, once again for joining us in this episode and for taking out time. And I think you have walked us through some very important points in terms of the importance of geography and movement of workers, in terms of types and patterns of movement in India, Nepal and Bangladesh uh, that are operating and the changing patterns of employment for women workers in South Asia. Thank you for listening to Migrant Rights, Migrant Realities. We love to hear your feedback. You can send us an email at gaatw at gaatw.org. Until then, I'm Namrata Daniel. Take care and stay well. Migrant Rights, Migrant Realities is created by Global Alliance Against Traffic in Women. It's produced by Chris Santo Domingo and edited by Norman Bugwisa. Check out the episode description for credits to the copyright free music. Special thanks to Sharmila Parmanand, Bobby Gerasimov, Ratna Matai Luke, and the guest for this episode, Igor Bosk of the Work in Freedom Program of the International Labour Organization. Music